Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I've lost track of what episode we're up to. I think it's officially episode 56, but the important thing is you are welcome to it. Nice. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I'm having a week off next week so I can accumulate some new facts to say in this bit at the start. And I'm Jen Offord and as of Sunday I am waiting for Noel. Not Noel, not like Christmas. No, Noel Edmonds. What's he up to? Because he is always up He's to something. He's always up to something and I he didn't transpire in the first episode of I'm a Celebrity but I'm sure he's going to materialise and it's going to be fucking amazing when he does. I imagine he will just materialise. Yeah, I thought that it was going to be like that was the prize for the people who won like the amazing camp. So there's two teams and they compete for like the best camp and I thought that's going to be the prize. They're going to get to the best camp and Noel Edmonds is going to be there waiting for them. But he wasn't. Oh, you missed a trick there, ITV. Later on, our consumer IFA, Vix Layton, is back, sharing tips on how to spend wisely for Christmas. And I can only apologise for the use of the word Christmas in November, but my little mother's been talking about it since September. We caught up with journalist Holly Powell-Jones to talk about the work she's doing with young people and social media. I chat to Emma, as she is known, or Emma Clit, in fact, she sometimes calls herself, to find out about her new book, The Mental Load, a Feminist Comic. And I also caught up with Head of Insight at Sport England, Lisa O'Keefe, and Sally Bolton of the All England Lawn Tennis Association to talk about what's going on in women's sport. And I do Disney's Finding Nemo. Bubbles, bubbles, bubbles. But first, cold weather inequality, goodbye local journalism, and, oh man, I don't even know that I could bring myself to say it. Brexit, it's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Well, we don't know what the fuck just happened either. Warning, may contain audible sobbing. <laughs> hey, Zeus, hey, Christo. It is a bleak, hopeless landscape we're looking at right now, isn't it? I've started re-watching Stranger Things and I honestly think the upside down, ruled by a slavering demagogue, would be preferable to a no-deal Brexit. Or a this-deal Brexit. Or just keep having to think about Brexit. Yes, hello and welcome to the worst political crisis since Suez, which ended the career of Prime Minister Anthony Eden. Although he was widely believed to be on a lot of pain drugs at the time, I'm still unsure as to what Nadine Dorries' <laughs> excuse is. <laughs> or indeed the BBCs, which seem to be taking the most ineffective political clickbait approach known to man when it hung its Saturday night news programme on the opinion of Andrea Leadsom. A bleak place for Prime Minister Theresa May when Leadsom might have the power to tip the extremely precarious balance of Parliament against her. With yet another new Brexit minister in post, British politics has felt a bit like shopping in Lidl, in that I can work out what's on offer, just none of the names mean anything to me. Except, like, there's no more continental meats allowed. No, no, (laughs) it's a lot of cracker bread. (laughs) The Cabinet is now like one of those big shows that tour with a collection of 80s bands. Some of the faces look familiar, but I'm pretty sure most of them weren't there last week. I never thought there'd be a point when a mention of the 1980s in any sort of relation to UK politics might make me feel nostalgic. (laughs) Like, oh, remember the 80s, lads? Sure. Thatcher was a malevolent spirit without empathy haunting a woman-shaped brick wall who devastated society and ruled over two recessions. But even her old mucker Ken Clark said way back in February of 2017 
that he'd never seen anything more mad or chaotic as this. He's been an MP for nearly 50 years. I mean, the past is a foreign country and all that, but at least that was in the EU. (laughs) Still, God bless Conservative Liz Perry. No, me either. Who stoically towed the will of the people line on Thursday's question time as Twitter users across the land were treated under a blanket to silently scream. Theresa May held a press conference explaining her deal, looking nothing so much as the robot in the story that Ken Cosgrove wrote in (laughs) Mad Men, which followed its programming to collapse a bridge between two worlds, regardless of how many people's lives depended on it. And there's no doubt she's got a thankless task, having to navigate a very tricky path among all the toys her party has thrown out of their brands. <laughs> it's a weird old sensation, isn't it? Feeling a bit sorry for Teabag, which I uh, sort of do. But I also can't help but think she has tapped into the spirit of General Melcher in Blackadder Goes Forth. If nothing else works, a total pig-headed unwillingness to look facts in the face will see us through. Pighead. Tory PM. Oh, it seems about right, yeah. doesn't it? <laughs> I actually think that she is literally the only member of her party to act with any kind of dignity in the last, I don't know, two years. But fortunately for her, newly appointed People's Princess Danny Dyer had her back <laughs> as he lambasted some of the clusterfuck's key agitators, including Boris Johnson for his, and I quote, stupid haircut, and Nigel Farage, who he called a prick in a suit. Both fair comments, though Farage is also sometimes a prick in a wax jacket or indeed with a pint of bombardier in his hand. Mm. I mean, I did see a hilarious amount of tweets about this. Obviously, Brexit, we haven't got time to go into them all. But since he's appearing in our show tomorrow, which will be yesterday if you're listening on Wednesday, Richard Herring really made me laugh with his hope that Joe Johnson was in fact Boris Johnson from another timeline. (laughs) 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 Who'd come to save us? The hope's all we've got. Yeah, um, scarce supply. Yeah. Anyone up for a bit of good news? Yes. Yeah. Sorry, there's none. Oh. <laughs> well, California literally burned. The Trump versus the media shit show really upped its game. While over here, the BBC decided to be what can only be described as a total dick to Carol Cadwallader. So much so, you can be forgiven for missing a whole other journalism-based shit show quietly flinging great lumps of itself at <laughs> us from just outside our eye line. Because there's only so much a mind can take, right? So, to catch you up, Johnson Press, one of the biggest names in newspaper publishing in the UK, went pop last week, causing a wave of panic, particularly about its big titles, the I Newspaper, the Scotsman and the Yorkshire Post. If you're interested in the history of how Johnson Press fucked it all up, The Guardian's got a great piece by Roy Greenslade in which he blames greed and capitalism, and I can't say (laughs) I disagree. What maverick choices. (laughs) By Sunday, a buyer had stepped forward, which you might think was good news, especially as they're saying it will be business as usual. But if past experience is anything to go by, it won't. In the past decade, local newspapers have been passed around like the title of Brexit secretary. No one's that bothered if they don't. Those that do are in it for what they can get out of it, and nobody stays for long. A paper I left just under six years ago has changed hands twice since then, and staff have been made redundant every time. If you're interested in why it matters so much that local journalism is dying, Alice Hutton talks about it in a podcast we did in December last year. There are even some hopeful bits in that, which I've got to admit I'm struggling with a bit. Mm -hmm. Although I did recently answer a tweet that said, what was cancelled in your lifetime that you wish would make a comeback with the words local journalism and Deadwood. So maybe it is all still to play for. Oh, it's fucking hope again, isn't it? Mm. It's just, oh, oh God. It'll kill you. Yeah. 
Well, it's nippy out, isn't it, lads? It is, yeah. Yeah. Well, spare a thought for the kids of Birkenhead's Woodchurch High School who've been banned from wearing luxury branded coats to class in a bid to stop, in inverted commas, poverty shaming. The ban, branded by some as ridiculous, covers brands such as Canada Goose, props for the best. I thought that was vodka. No, Canada mate. Goose. Coats. That's Grey Goose. Oh, OK. Coats. Uh, that will keep you warm, but... <laughs> don't take it to school. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely don't take it to school. Props for the best, given that their garments use actual fur from actual animals. Mm. But it's all right, because I read a blog post about it when I was researching this last night, and they just shoot the coyotes in the face. They don't suffer afterwards. So it's fine, isn't it? You know, morally justifiable, right? Oh, and they cost about £400 in a kid's size. £400? That's how much your first fucking car used to cost, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know, I can't drive. But That you is know. literally how much my first car cost, £400. Yeah. Yeah, I think mine was 450. Anyway, head teacher Rebecca Phillips said the ban had been introduced due to pressure faced by kids and parents to keep up with ludicrously priced trends and that the ban had been introduced in consultation with them. But obviously Twitter had some thoughts on the matter, such as one user who posed the question, banning luxury coats? What happened to the British people who stood up in the 1940s and were tougher than nails? absolutely logical tweet there yeah I can see the direct link between the two (laughs) apart from the fact that I mean they weren't 12 years old were they to be fair another commented it's a fact of life that there are poor kids get over it damn right there are let's all point in them and laugh shall we rather than do anything to help I was chatting the other day to someone about school uniforms and how I think they are a brilliant idea because they're a leveller and we were yeah. poor when I was growing up and the school uniform meant that I got teased a lot less. But some prick will always find a way around it to have really expensive shoes or really expensive coats for their kids. What mm. I will say about school uniforms is, though, that they're not actually cheap. My nephew lost his blazer the other day and my brother was like, man, I've got to do some overtime at work to pay for another one of those. Yeah, we didn't have blazers. No, we, we didn't. jumped for a special tie. We had a sweatshirt and like a polo shirt. It, it was, was like a t-shirt, yeah. really proper shit. Also, girls weren't allowed to wear trousers. Oh. Did you have that at your school? No, we no. weren't allowed to wear trousers. We were allowed to. But there was a time when you had to wear a um, one of those funny little skirts for PE. Yeah, you netball, couldn't. yeah. Netball skirt. Yeah, but like for... And pants. We had to wear the big pants. pants. Yeah. Yeah. Talking of massive pants, as ever. (laughs) (laughs) As ever, the Spice Girls have their collective finger on the UK pulse, choosing now to reveal that girl power was an absolute nonsense. And actually, they're all about people power. What's more, scary, sporty, ginger and baby, no posh, a.k.a. Melanie Brown, Melanie Chisholm, Jerry Horner and Emma Bunton, reckon we should totes get behind Theresa May. People power plus Theresa May, eh, birds? Hmm. How's that working out for everyone? <laughs> Maths is clearly not your strong point, but I guess we have known that since the release of Two Become One. Jerry went a bit further off Theresa May. She told The Sun, that beacon of sense and sensibility, Britain, come together whatever it is. Come together and sort our solutions out together. That's the most important thing. We don't have to agree on politics. It's bigger than that. You can just support a woman doing the best she can, and that's it. Um. <laughs> Yeah, well, I tell you what I want, what I really, really want, Jerry, remain, which may well be easier to sort than a ticket to the Spice Girls reunion. Oh, Lord. Oh, dear. Where does the sun stand on Brexit now, incidentally? Because I've seen the Daily Mail have got a new editor and he is trolling Paul Dacre every day and it's wonderful. 
I don't know. I mean, I know that the Daily Express editor said the other day that he felt some responsibility for what oh. had befallen the country. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, that's enough. good of him. What did Diana say to the Daily Express <laughs> about Brexit? That's what I want to know. Where is she? Uh, reflected in my cup of tea, <laughs> probably. Does anybody want some good news? Yes, Are you please. Yeah, again? No, I actually found some. The Financial Times has created a bot that automatically warns journalists if their articles quote too many men. After a study revealed that just 21% of people quoted in the FT were women. And while it seems ridiculous that you need a bit of tech to point out that you're reinforcing the patriarchy, (laughs) I can't deny this is a good thing. Well done, FT. More news next time. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where they line the sexism up and we shoot it down. Over in Gamerville, that bastion of equality and right-thinking chaps, the same old just keeps same olding. You've no doubt seen massive billboards advertising Rockstar's latest game, Red Dead Redemption 2, a mostly woman-free Western romp that has been getting glowing reviews across the board. It's a violent game. Rockstar's games tend to be violent games, predominantly man-on-man violence, as in the case of Red Dead Redemption 2, where the player interacts with various characters, often with one of them winding up dead. But the company has been criticised for sexist portrayals of women before. In Grand Theft Auto 3, players were allowed to have sex with prostitutes and it wasn't long before some players discovered a loophole where you could fuck the prostitute, then kill her and take your cash back. Oof, nice. And so it's no surprise that it took hardly any time at all for someone to find a way to abuse one of the very few women characters in RDR2. YouTube channel Shirako uploaded a video capture of a portion with an avatar physically assaulting a female character, a suffragette in fact, until she was unconscious. The video was titled Beating Up Annoying Feminist and it's important to point out that there is nothing to be gained in the game for doing this. No points to be had, just that tiny boner because you're a sexist (laughs) fucktop. Within days, the video had received more than one million views. And while some viewers remarked that they planned to replicate the behaviour in the video, others took it further, commenting, the only good feminist is a dead feminist. Sure. Giving women the right to vote was a mistake. I didn't know Nigel Farage played computer <laughs> games. Hey, when that bombardier kicks oh, I was in. Say, <laughs> one too many of those. <laughs> OK, OK, so you might argue that this violence against women characters is down to individual players rather than the game maker. But... While it's, I don't know, laudable that Rockstar put a suffragette in the game, it seems um, not so laudable that it allowed a loophole whereby a player can kick the shit out of her for no good reason. Or indeed, feed her to an alligator. I also have a question about historical accuracy of having a suffragette (laughs) wandering the Wild West. I I can't see how that could have happened, really, considering that, you know, suffragettes were host or a late 19th century, early 20th century, predominantly East Coast movement. And anyway. You but do yeah. get alligators everywhere, though. I can, yeah. I've can. i done my research on this. Yeah, you know, mm. like women just want to see women bugging on about women, don't they? Can you assault any other random passerby, or is it just the suffragette? You can interact with all of them. Can you beat them up? You can beat them up. Okay. The question is, should Rockstar Games be held accountable for fostering negative attitudes and should game developers consider like putting a block that prevents players from attacking the female game characters in this way? I'm, I'm going to go in for a big fight, yes. I mean, it, it's why is it necessary? I mean, I think, you know, I, I 
just don't understand. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, it. Yeah, what Jen said. <laughs> Hello, Mickey here. Just popping in to let you know about our last gig of the year. That's right. If you listen to this on Wednesday, you missed our Tuesday gig, which was The Men. And December the 16th sees normal service resuming with some cracking birds. We have got Lolly Adafope, we've got Felicity Ward and we have got Laura Bates at Leicester Square Theatre, 7 o'clock. Grab your tickets, easily done. Just go to our page on Sarah's website, www.sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue. See you there. Hi, we're joined today by Holly Powell-Jones, journalist and many other things besides. <laughs> I'm mean, a classic example of someone who couldn't decide what they wanted to do, so they do loads of things. Welcome to your home place. <laughs> <laughs> the Powell Jones of all trades. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Apparently the end of that sentence is Jack of all trades, master of none, often fares better than master of one. So Really? Oh. Apparently that's good for us portfolio career types. Every day's a school day. <laughs> yeah. You do actually teach as well, don't you? I do, yeah. So um, I trained as a journalist uh, and then I started working for a radio station and uh, off the back of that got into teaching in schools and that was how I started teaching social media law and ethics which became my sort of main job for a bit and then off the back of that I got a studentship to do a PhD so do a little bit of academic and lecturery stuff as well and media training work so yeah basically anything that'll pay. A multi-hyphenate hyphenate yeah. in fact. Yeah. <laughs> basically. Mm. We're going to get on to the issue in our Sunday chops about the pitfalls there are for everybody on social media, blogging, podcasting, when it comes to media law. But now, today, we'd like to talk about the work that you are doing with children in schools about social media law. What first drew you to that field? I'll be honest with you, it happened because of a news story. So I was working in news, and you might remember back in 2013, there was a story about Paris Brown. She was the first youth police and crime commissioner, or she was going to be, and then there was this huge outcry because a newspaper published all of her really offensive tweets that she'd posted sort of as she was growing up as a teenager. And it was basically because of that that I thought, well... I've had media law and ethics training in my journalism qualification, but all these teenagers are publishing and broadcasting as well. Maybe maybe they need to know about media law. So that was why I designed some basic training on communication law, pitched at 11 to 18-year-olds, started doing it in schools, and it was off the back of that that somebody else said, oh, so you're you're asking kids about what they think is and isn't illegal to post online, yeah, and you're writing down what they say, yeah, and you're putting it in a report. Oh, yeah, you're doing research, actually. That is research. So, you know, you should think about coming and doing some actual proper academic research on this because it's something that there's obviously been a lot of panic about kids online, using the internet, do they know what is and isn't okay? And so that's how my research project came about. What specifically are you talking to young people about? The way that it works is I basically do a workshop. So I put them into groups, I go into schools, put them into little groups, and I give out 12 examples of online posts, uh, varying degrees of offensiveness, some more serious than others. And I basically get them in their groups to discuss how risky they think it would be to post that online. I give them four categories of risk. Red if they think it's a criminal offence or a criminal risk. 
Orange if they think it's something they could get sued for. Yellow if it's like a reputation or an ethics problem. And green if they think it's fine, no problem. And then I basically go around, note down which categories they think it belongs to. And then I say, why did you put it there? I write down what they say, basically. And what are they saying? Oh, well, I've got to say, probably my main finding from my research project is that there is very little consensus amongst what young people think is illegal online. I think the biggest shock for me, actually, was having been in schools quite a bit and seen there's a lot of work around sexting. So telling kids, you know, you can't share indecent images if you're under 18 because that's breaking the law. I thought that was going to be the one that they all got right and put in red. However, what my research showed was actually that was the one that they most disagreed over how risky it was. And was there a gender split between girls and boys there? Yeah, there was a little bit. So we had some mixed gender groups and some uh, all-female groups. And generally, well, consistently, the female groups rated it as higher risk than the mixed gender groups, which was really, really interesting because some other research around focus groups suggests that women and girls tend to assimilate with male perspectives when they're Mm. put in a mixed group. Everyone's nodding. There's not even a a man in the room to tell us to nod, (laughs) and yet we're nodding. But we also had examples of racist and homophobic hate speech, some some threats, some explicit and and suggested threats. We had an example of a teacher-student relationship allegation. So we had a whole range of different kinds of risky online behaviours to kind of see how they compared basically. What age group of kids are you talking to? This is 11 year olds up to 18 year olds so they're in mixed gender groups but they're in their same age groups. Mm. Right and can I ask uh, what sort of level of using social media are are they at? Are they at like 100%? Yes, my my previous work in Surrey with the Police and Crime Commissioner and Eagle Radio Limited, where I was doing the education, we actually gathered data about how many of them were using what apps, what sites, how many of them had a smartphone. And basically, it was by the time they got to secondary school, it was like 99% of them pretty much have their own internet-enabled device. Some of them are using sites like Facebook and Twitter, but not so much. More of them are now leaning towards instant messaging apps. But a lot of the same laws apply, which is why it's really important. Really? So what about, so WhatsApp, for example, would that count as the same? Well, a lot of offences are about the distribution of certain materials. Mm. So whether you were distributing it in a group chat or in a sort of an online post, mm. those laws would still apply. And then there are other laws, which it, it is different if it's private or public. But generally speaking, the laws kind of cover, yeah, distributing material and also like the intention of the message as well, if it's designed to harass people, things like that. So, or to cause harm. Yeah, or, so yeah. It, it's, it's less about which platforms are being used, which is good for this training. It's more broad principles of what is and isn't okay and then you can apply it to any platform isn't there an age limit on facebook and twitter yes there are i'm pretty sure it's not 11 it was 13 for ages wasn't it 14 or 16 isn't it yeah i mean i doubt anyone's going to be shocked to hear that hey kids are using things before sure you're going to tell me that kids can access porn next (laughs) yeah i know shocking it is obviously the case that these things are in place I think it's a really tricky challenge for it's the I think it's the British Board of Film Classification who's been tasked with tackling online verification age verification processes to stop children 
accessing porn and um, I think that's a huge challenge um, for them but yeah. I did often get, I did actually quite often get asked by um, at the end of the sessions I was like any questions and I did get an awful lot of teenage boys being like so I've got a question I'm asking for a friend um, <laughs> he might have been on a website that was for over 18s and clicked uh, yes, I'm over 18. Uh, is he going to get arrested or anything? Quite a lot of my job was, well, basically saying, no, you're not going to get arrested. You know, that's not, the police are not here to criminalise children for breaching those kinds of rules. However, those rules are in place for a reason. And, you know, there's a reason why somebody's decided that's over 18. But I think a lot of this is actually more to do with culture than it is with law certain things become a social norm if it's a social norm for teenagers to share images with their boyfriends girlfriends whatever that is almost stronger I think than whatever laws us adults have decided to put in place so that's where there's a tension that is really really interesting and I would like to ask you a little bit more about one of the examples you gave which was about the implication that there might be a relationship between a student and a teacher because I think you were quite surprised with what came back from that right? Mm, absolutely so again there's been quite a lot of work in schools around safeguarding and worrying about kind of being groomed online and things like that however when the example that I gave about an allegation of a, a teacher-student relationship none of my participants said oh I, I think you need to report that to a teacher or to an adult whatever generally the vibe was that lots of young people were either assuming that it was a lie just assuming that it couldn't possibly be true, mm-hmm. which is a bit worrying. And then the people who did consider that it might be true, even then they were a bit like, well, you, you shouldn't tell anyone about that. That's quite, you know, that's risky. You could get the teacher in trouble. You could get the student in trouble. Yeah, yeah. It's not your business to post about that. So to me, that's really flagged up that we need to do a lot better on safeguarding because that seems to be the attitude that if that's going on, I don't need to do anything about it. And that's quite... You know, it feels like the cultural norm in that case is silence. Definitely, I would say so. And actually, there's been a lot of um, discussion around safeguarding, obviously, since the Jimmy Savile's actions kind of came out and has been talked about. And I think the most scary thing about that is how many people actually knew about it. It was yeah. kind of mm. one of those open secrets, um, mm-hmm. particularly among journalists even. Yeah. And when you think about the fact that people whose literal job it is to hold power to account didn't necessarily act upon those rumours and stuff. It's it's not really surprising that, you know, children would feel like they're not empowered to Yeah, and report. also, I guess they're in a position where if an adult tells you to do something, like, that's day one what you're taught is listen to what an adult's telling you, isn't it? Mm. With the issue of consent, you said that was the issue that, that there was most disagreement on, which would assume... So the message that's being put out there now isn't reaching everyone. I'm going to say something that is quite controversial. Say it. Having looked into it a lot and spoken to a lot of children, I think sometimes the education that we're doing to try and protect children is actually contributing to victim blaming, actually. Tell us more, please. Okay. A lot of messaging from some organisations is along the lines of don't share images of yourself or this thing will happen And that suggests a little bit of an air of inevitability. Like, if you're going to share images of yourself, what do you expect? This is going to happen. And that, I think, is what I would call a bit of a... It adds to responsabilisation 
of particularly girls mm. to make sure that they're not taking any naughty images because it's them who are ultimately responsible if things go wrong. Now, that's why I think I get a lot of young people who say things like, well, if Alice took the video herself, then I couldn't get in trouble for sharing it. I literally had one student say, well, if she's done the video, then she's made her bed, she's got a lie in it. And that kind of attitude, I think, has possibly been a bit of an inadvertent side effect of targeting prevention of, of, of child abuse online at potential victims, like it's their job, because it's not. Well, yeah. you see that in the in the wider world as well like with Jennifer Lawrence when those photos got released and it was like the big thing that I took away from reading various comments and opinion pieces and news reports is well she shouldn't have let anyone take any photos in the first place and it's yeah. that's not it's not the victim's fault no so how not. does the ownership of photos work and particularly with children first and foremost sharing any indecent sexual naked videos or pictures of someone without their consent and with the intention of causing them humiliation and distress is a crime even you if you're have over to prove that you have to prove that it was intended to cause distress that's where that's where there's a bit of a trickiness in the mm. legislation so this was kind of like a, a a new law that came in under the criminal justice and courts act 2015 which was a good it was a good thing because it made revenge porn a sort of an offence in its own right and that was really good for awareness raising things like that however lots of feminist legal scholars who work in this area people like Claire McGlynn have highlighted that we still got quite a long way to go in terms of actually making the laws to actually protect mostly women from image-based sexual mm. abuse so she's done a lot of stuff on things like upskirting and now things like deep fake porn yeah, as well I saw that that is Horrific. I don't even know what that is. It's when they superimpose your face oh, on okay. like a porn star's body, but they do it so well, it looks like it's you. And it, it, the computer does it better the more images there are of your face. So it's basically women who are in the public eye. Right. Who get this more than anybody else. And I think there's a broader conversation to be had here about how this is potentially going to put women off and girls off from from having public accounts as well and, yeah. and and entering public life. And so, yeah, I mean, the reason why I started this education, frankly, was because there already is a lot of work in schools uh, focused at victims and um, potential victims, getting children to protect themselves and be safe. I wanted to go in and speak to the potential offenders. I wanted to go in and be like, OK, if you do this, forget whether you think it's nice or not or unfair or not. This is the law. This is what can happen to you. Here's a case study of somebody that's been to prison. Don't do it. I think that is so fascinating and so tricky because when you're looking at kids, we can imagine, because we know the world can be horrific, it can be gorgeous, but it can be horrific, we can imagine that those kids could end up being the victim of something. But no one wants to look at a kid and go, well, you're going to be Kevin. You know, we're going to need to talk yeah. about you. Did you make it quite clear that that's the angle you were taking or were you a little bit more sneaky about it? Uh, no, that was the angle that I was taking. So the, the project started back in 2013 because I was working with local radio station Eagle Radio in Surrey and our police and crime commissioner basically commissioned us to do this training in order to try and reduce and prevent sexting, cyberbullying, online hate speech, those kinds of things. That was kind of the purpose. And that was recommissioned for, for sort of a further three years. In 2016-17, we educate 15,500 wow. children. Amazing. Well on done. This, yeah, on this subject matter. 
um, which is great. But I also think, you know, there's a really tough situation for the police because they've obviously, they are the police. Their job is to police criminal behaviour. But there's a lot of concern that they just don't have the resources to deal with online stuff or that there's so much of it. And also technology just advances so Mm. quickly. Snapchat uh, was really on the rise when I started going into schools. Part of me is a bit like, okay, so you've designed an app primarily for sending people photos that disappear after a few seconds. What would you use what that do you for? I think that's yeah. gonna get used. And there was a horrific story of the I think they got they got hacked and there was all sorts of images that then obviously they're not gone, they were out and about. So it is really, really important to look at the the legal framework, I think. Um, but also, I'm all in favour of putting more pressure on technology companies to make sure that they are taking some responsibility for this as well, because they're very happy to take everyone's money. So they should be happy to make sure that they're being used ethically and, and, and maybe they should fund some of the education as well. Something like WhatsApp, for example, the way that technology is kind of, um, it, you know, it almost assists people in doing this because WhatsApp, it's all encrypted. If You don't actually have to, if you're being investigated by the police, you don't actually have to give them that and there's no way of them making you do it, basically. Yeah, I'm not anti-encryption, though, because I think encryption is very, very important as well mm. for all sorts of other reasons. Sorry, I, I teach media law and ethics to journalists and things like protecting your sources and stuff is really, really important. You're right, it is the technology kind of complicates yeah. mm. everything. But for me, personally, I would say this because I'm a sociologist, I'm interested in social norms and culture and about how ideas about responsibility and risk and blame influence our perceptions of what is and isn't acceptable basically i've got one last question is there hope (laughs) there's definitely hope yeah i I mean i talk about kind of the negative findings because they're the juicy ones that everyone wants to know about but i'm really pleased to say that a lot of my participants had a really strong awareness of what was right and wrong on a moral sense even if they were unclear on the laws there were a lot of awareness of, of privacy and people's rights to have a private life. Also, you know, a lot of people thinking about ethics and not just of the people that the messages were targeted at, but also the audience, you know, other people who are going to see it. So I definitely think there is hope. And I strongly believe that we do need to have these conversations with young people because I think only by keeping those channels of communication open are we going to be able to make sure that we design laws, design technology, design education that's going to work for them rather than just what we think the kids are doing or saying or feeling. Oh, that seems a really positive note to end it on. It does. Thanks so much, Holly, for coming in. That was really interesting. Thank you. Hello. I just noticed you going in your bag for something and could hear the jingle jangle of some change. Now then, if that change isn't being used for a cup of tea or coffee or to do a worthy cause, you could consider giving it to us. And you can do that by popping over to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash standard issue and any bunts you would like to throw our way is very gratefully received and helps us keep making content that champions women thanks very much hello i'm joined by emma clitt activist and author of the mental load of feminist comic and you may have seen this in the guardian and is now due to be published as a book hi emma thanks for joining us Hi, I'm glad to be there. (laughs) My first question is, what is the mental load, as in the concept and the book? The 
mental health concept is a feminist concept that has been studied by feminist sociologists. I think a French one and a Canadian one. It describes the fact that women are always worrying about organizing the household chores. Uh, so it's not about doing the chores, like the laundry and uh, everything. Uh, it's about thinking about them, planning them, thinking about who will do them and when and what. Uh, so I spoke about it because we often talk about the, the task's execution, but not about thinking about it. So it's something that is uh, kind of invisible and it Vites a lot in inequality, in gender inequalities. The book is called The Mental Load because uh, it's some, uh, it's a, the comic about the mental load is a part of it. Uh, and uh, it also describes some other gender inequalities around uh, the maternity and obstetrical violences. A lot of subjects about uh, social injustice towards women. When you think about comic books or graphic novels, I think people generally think of them as being something that men or teenage boys are kind of more interested in. Is it a particularly male-dominated world? Absolutely, and uh, quite a time ago, uh, the comics were considered to be for kids. So it was not considered as real literary. And uh, when it became literature for adult people, most of the time men uh, did uh, the comics. So it's quite hard for women to to have a place in this. When women draw comics, it is considered as feminine lit literature. <laughs> uh, uh, when men draw comics, uh, it is considered as literature for everyone. So yeah. women uh, read comics drawn by uh, men, but men don't read comics drawn by women because it's considered to be girly. Mm -hmm. And uh, me, as a woman who, uh, moreover, has not uh, studied art, and I'm a computer scientist, so uh, I face even more hostility from the, this uh, field and a lot of French uh, male artists uh, are angry against me because uh, because some people like my work and they consider as I am a woman, a feminist, and I didn't learn art, I should not publish books. You're taking up space in a male world, yeah. basically. <laughs> How did you get into writing, drawing, creating comic books? Actually, I first... I became a feminist when I was uh, 30 years old. And I think it's, it's often when uh, we have kids and we understand a lot of things. For me, it was that uh, I tried to speak with people and I was so feminist. I wanted everyone to be a feminist as well. So I spoke with everyone. I, and I, there wasn't a conversation I was able to have without, without uh, speaking about feminism and uh, how important it was. So uh, nobody wanted to speak with me anymore. <laughs> 
So I thought about it uh, and I thought uh, I have to find another way. And when you are face to face with people, I think they, they have some ego. They don't want to change their mind in front of you. Uh, so I thought I have to write things and they have, they are alone. They read it when they want. They have time to think and change their mind uh, alone. Uh, so I wrote some kind of flyers explaining what, what feminism is and uh, and why it's important. But people didn't read them because uh, it was not very fun. There were a lot of writings and uh, uh, it was very um, uh, academic. Like, uh. So I try to draw on them to make them more fun and uh, uh, to make understand uh, uh, how important it is by drawing uh, the feelings of the people who live those oppressions. And uh, then people started to stop and read the flyers and discuss with me. So uh, I thought, okay, when, when I draw stories, people are interested in what I have to say after the story. Uh, so I started my blog on the internet and uh, in two years I started with 10 friends and now we are 300,000 so wow. in, in two years because stories and drawings help a lot. Actually that leads me nicely into my next question which is that people can be quite dismissive of comic books as you sort of said before and graphic novels but there are some really famous powerful examples like Art Spiegelman's Mouse and Nick Drasno Sabrina which is kind of about like the internet era and the Trump era and the extremist era I suppose what do you think the power is of the graphic novel as a storytelling mechanism I think it's very powerful because uh, drawing is kind of the first thing humanity used to communicate it is what a prehistoric people uh, used to, to communicate uh, and draw uh, their stories uh, on the walls so I think it draws uh, uh, the attention of people. It tells a lot in a few small drawings. It allows to transmit uh, uh, a lot of feelings with just only uh, changing uh, like the eyebrows or the eyes. Uh, you can tell a lot uh, with a drawing. So I think politically it's very useful to send out uh, ideas, but it can be used for good ideas as for very um, nasty ideas. One of the things I saw when I was reading the book today, which is so interesting to me because it's about objectification of women by men and how we internalise that objectification, but about the idea that even being observed by men can make you feel extremely uncomfortable. But I always thought that it was me that I was being paranoid until I read this today. I thought I didn't realise that this was actually a thing it just hadn't occurred to me that this was, you know, something that people had actually sort of studied. It was really, really interesting for me to read because there's a lot of information in the book about studies and research, not just here's some pictures. And it covers a lot of ground. It covers gaslighting, medical misogyny, objectification, loads of different things. What was the most important issue for you to cover? I think it, for me it depends on 
my experience at the moment where I'm writing the comic. So every time I'm writing about something, it's because I'm experiencing it or a friend of mine experiences it. And I know by reading and by discussing around me that she's not experiencing it because uh, she's unlucky or what. Uh, I know it's because she's a, a woman, so uh, I'm writing about it. So I wouldn't say there's one more important than another, but I think all those stories are bound by the same thing. It means this world harms women and uh, it is physically, psychologically or sexually, but sexism harms women. So uh, I think all the stories are kind of um, are around this. <laughs> sexism harms men as well. Yes, I think I will write about this because men, uh, sexism puts men and women in kind of boxes yeah <laughs> and it's uncomfortable to be in a box so i think that children girls and boys are kind of divided uh, when they are kids uh, and we allow them half of the feelings we tell uh, little girls that they can be kind they can be quiet they can be sensible they can have uh, they have fear they can be sad but they cannot be angry they cannot take too much place. And to boys, we will say uh, they can uh, take place, they can make uh, do sports, they can run, they can talk loud, but they cannot be sad, they cannot fear anything, uh, they cannot uh, talk about their emotions. So when we see that, we could say, so uh, both parts are equally um, harmed by sexism. But the problem is that... Uh, what is forbidden to boys is forbidden because they do not want to be like girls. Because being a girl is something bad, is considered like something bad, something humiliating for a boy. And it means that those two boxes, they are not at the same level. The, the boy's box is above the girl's box. Uh, it's a hierarchy. And uh, sexism gives men's economical, physical, political power on women. So I think men would be relieved to go out their box, but I think it's harder for them to do it because uh, it means lose some kind of power. What do you want people to take away from the book after they've read it? So I don't want people, I know that I don't want, <laughs> I don't want people to ask me what they must do now to look for someone to follow or to listen to. I want people to look forward to think by themselves and have another look on behavior, on inequalities, uh, uh, some, a look different from what we usually have in the media. I think when we have, when we take this another look on the situations, uh, we understand a lot of things and we understand the hierarchy between some group of people and uh, we find the solution by ourselves and I think the solution is collective, not a leader and, some, and everyone follows, but everyone at the same level discussing things and uh, how to change them. <laughs> the book is available in all good bookshops and it was published on October the 25th. Do you have any social media channels or a website we can follow you on? Yeah, I have a blog which is where you can find some of my comics translated in English by uh, some people from my community. So it's English.emaclid.com. 
And I have a Facebook page and Instagram. The links are on my blog. I try to publish also in English on Instagram. So. <laughs> Emma, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. <laughs> Hello, we are joined by the one, the only, Vic Slayton, who is basically our go-to consumer independent financial advisor. Hi, Vic. I'm not actually financially advisory qualified. I feel the need to point that out. I'm just a, an enthusiast. That is worth saying for legal <laughs> yeah. reasons. Disclaimer, disclaimer from Vic's at the top. But still, if you can't help us, no one can. It's true. I'll do my best with what I've got. Apologies all around, but we are going to be talking about Christmas in November. I know, I know, but it's Black Friday this Friday, November the 23rd. So my first question, Vix, is how bothered should we be about Black Friday? It depends if you've got something that you want to buy, basically. There are deals to be had. Electricals are where it all started. So it was like an Amazon thing in America. So electricals are still where it's at. So if you're looking for like something like a Sonos or something big or a Nintendo Switch. I've bought my husband a Nintendo Switch as a surprise last week to you know try and get wife points because Black Friday now is not Black Friday. The deal started probably mm. a week ago and they'll run a week after because nobody really wants to just concentrate everything on that one day now. Because so, like the Boxing Day sales that start before Christmas. Exactly. And retail's in crisis at the moment. They need to make the sales. And Black Friday's created a horrible black hole where they do a lot of business and if they don't do a lot of business because they did a lot of business last year if they've got investors investors are going to be asking why have you not done a lot of business but to get the sales now they have to discount deeper and deeper and it's pushed loads of independents completely out of business because they just can't cope with the level of discounting they're doing to compete so i think a lot of shops now are taking an objection to it and are not participating but it's created this horrible sales culture which is great for consumers for now but I guess not so great because only the big players will survive. When the big players are the only ones that survive, they can choose to just not participate anymore and Black Friday could go away. It probably won't, but yeah, it's been an interesting time for shops. But it's still a thing, very much still a thing. There are deals to be had. Don't go mad, though. People think they have to buy something, and I've, I work in it, and I've done this every year, probably just sat on the computer and opened up a Google window and gone, what do I want to buy? Like <laughs> All these options, and I don't want anything. So get a list in mind like prep for black friday if you've got some stuff that you think you want even like utilities and stuff now you can get deals on broadband and mobile phone contracts because everybody wants to be part of it people are in the mood to spend and you want to be there when when you're spending so think about what you want i know exactly what i want i want a dress and a shirt from top shop should i wait until friday to buy it you can probably get a sense now with a bit of googling what their intentions will be they might have already gone into sale already i did do a bit of googling didn't say the things that I wanted would likely be in the sale. <laughs> Black Friday's all over all of the like news outlets. There's so much shit about it online telling you like what might happen where. Do they have an inside track? Do the shops go to them and say, oh, we're going to do yes. this, like tease it? So if it says it will be these things... You can probably take a decent assurance it's going to be those things. They okay. will have had a tip off. I've been looking at Black Friday deals in my day job and sort of pushing them in under embargo for mm. a little while now. They'll know. All these deals pages have to go out to the high street and look at the prices. It's, they still want you to pay full price this week. So it's not really in their best interests if they aren't going to go into sale until Black Friday. It's not in their best interest to suggest that you wait because... 
They'd rather Good you point. pay full price. Mm. Can I ask, when you say you bought a Switch, right, because that's a thing, apparently. I mean, I'm assuming you got a good deal on that. Yeah. But what does a good deal on that mean? Is well, that, like, half price? I Googled it, and what I got was a bundle. So it was the console itself and two games, including the new Pokemon game, which is what Reese really wanted. So, <laughs> And I did as well, because you can dress them in, like, hats and glasses and stuff and cuddle them. So when you say what Reese really wanted... <laughs> There's also like a Dance Nation game that I tried on Saturday and I'm sorry, whatever is in there that is telling them that I'm doing the moves is nonsense. That is bullshit because I don't know what I was doing, but it's like, you're doing great. I was like, I'm not. I was sitting there in my pyjamas, <laughs> waggling. <laughs> I was quite hot though, so I did get a decent workout. That was the that was the deal breaker for me. That was the thing that I was interested in. I thought I was going to you know, learn to dance. I'm probably not going to put that on ever again. But <laughs> Stick with Pikachu then. But I was, I did some good Googling for that and I found some deal sites with Gossipon exactly like you said basically the people in the know said this is probably the best deal that you're going to see if it's not it's not but it was definitely significantly cheaper but it got about £80 off and where do you go to for the decent information there are some absolutely brilliant money bloggers out there like Lottie Burns is one at Lottie Burns on Twitter she gets some good not just tip offs for discount but also like site glitches so if for some reason you're getting free delivery on something and they think maybe the website's gone down and that's why she'll flag that up. So there are, there's a whole community of citizen journalists that are out there doing this for you that are really geeky, that want to get the best deal and everything. So you can start with Google or you can start with Twitter's really good for it as well. A lot of them are verified now. So you've got like people like Skint Dads. They're all verified. They spend the whole day doing it and they do it so you don't have to. Like Hot UK Deals is really good for them as well for deals because... It's this really strange little community. They really want to be the first person to get the details of the deal in. And then you can like rate them up and down based on how hot or cold it is and whether it's an actual decent deal. So in theory, it's like consumer tested. The deals that are at the top are because people have tried them or they are good deals. So you can sort of trust the ones at the top that someone's had a look, had a look at the terms and conditions. And equally, if it's deals that are too good to be true, they'll say that there as well. So this is excellent information. I know I did homework this time. Sometimes really? I just go, blah, 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 my hairdresser's mean. <laughs> I thought, you know. Christmas is very much a time of year when people seem to plan a budget and, and put money aside, but it very quickly goes out of the window. Do you have any tips on how the easily distracted can stick to a budget, <laughs> please? Uh, (laughs) what i do is with bigger purchases i go away and think about them and if i'm still thinking about that item in a week then i want it and then i buy it but if i've forgotten about it like oh do i want this tube mat bedspread i'm sure it's exactly what i want in this really terrible abrasive fabric that's going to rub my rub my skin off that's the first time i've thought about it since i really 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 wanted it in the supermarket probably about six months ago but that's the example that sprung to mind I didn't want that so I'm glad that I've got it (laughs) (laughs) one one of my biggest problems is I don't go shopping I don't enjoy shopping I don't really want that much stuff I'm not really into technology so it's like I've got a shit TV and I'll have a shit TV until it breaks and then I'll get another TV I don't feel the need to upgrade it in any way until I think like with you and me a friend donates us a a TV a TV I've got my brother's old TV I've got my mate Miller's old TV one of the problems I have is that when I go Christmas shopping because I'm out Christmas shopping 
for other people and I'm in shops. I actually see stuff that I want for myself because I don't usually go in shops. At least half of the presents that I buy other people, I end up keeping myself. I can't no, discourage that, though, no, because that you don't shop in the... in. You know, if you don't normally shop, then maybe you need that. Otherwise yeah, but it does blow your rags. budget no, quite that's substantially. The budget rule that I apply is that for every two presents, I'll probably buy one for me. <laughs> <laughs> that's a thing, right? Yeah, because I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I bought that lovely scarf for my sister. It's so lovely. I'm going to have to go out and buy her another present because I'm keeping that lovely scarf. But, you know, I guess another thing, and it's become a bit trendy over the last sort of year or so because there's so much focus on waste and plastic and things for things' sake. Do they need it? Does she need another scarf? Well, no, I've tried to buy a lot of my presents recently. I've tried to buy people things that were like theatre tickets or something that was a thing that they probably wouldn't spend on themselves, money they wouldn't spend themselves, mm. and you are giving them something that, you know, that they'll go, ooh, yeah, night out or whatever. Yeah. A bit of luxury that involves yeah. like time and, and sort of a memory. Yes. Yeah. I did a similar thing for my brother's 30th. He's just moved house and he's sharing with a mate while they save money to buy their own house. So he didn't want more stuff. He's not really a stuff person anyway. So I got him coffee box delivery for six months because I know he'll use it and he'll enjoy it. And he didn't have money for his posh coffee that he liked. Magazine subscriptions are quite good to buy people as well. Yeah, There's loads of them now as well. Like I get Birchbox and it's like a kinder egg for grown-ups. Oh, I love Birchbox. It's so good. Except you do get a lot of shit in it, to be fair. But they're fun, aren't they? You never know what shit you're going to get. There's (laughs) always one thing in there that I probably want that I probably wouldn't bother with. So it's like, oh, this is quite a premium moisturiser that I'm never going to spend £30 on. But let's have a little go of this Charlotte Tilsbury supermodel body whatever it is it's like I get so much joy out of the just when it arrives yeah. opening the box there's like a man's one called like my suit and tie and it's not cheap do but... you get a suit and tie everyone well you can make it quarterly <laughs> you can make it monthly they do some really good like new member sort of new customer deals as well and you get all these little accessories and again so you might get like a pocket square and a tie and a little aftershave tester and cufflinks and a tie pin it's stuff that you wouldn't necessarily buy yourself it's just a bit of a tree isn't it it's, an, it's a nice thing i like those subscription things i'm i'm on board with those let's go back into the wilds back into the wilds of either the internet or actual physical shops which i believe do still just about exist are there any tips for keeping your head When all about you, others are losing theirs (laughs) in the spending friends. (laughs) Well, it's just look at the deals, like take a minute and read the deals and look at the labels and look at the stuff. Because a lot of sales stuff in fashion shops won't even be this season. And some of it you know, because it's like, oh, this is a handkerchief top from the 90s. So this is like, I don't want this. But Rara skirts are back. But as soon as you slap a little red sticker on it or a percentage, people get like carried away. But if you started to treat it like people treat like SES and like Furniture Direct, where well, you know that those sofas never cost that, except in like one shop for two weeks, like a year ago. Just be cynical. It's same. It's like not just Black Friday. It's everywhere. If you see a buy one get one free or buy one and you know get the second one two for two pound, look at the unit price on it and go actually is this cheaper than what I would get? I love the unit price because that helps you. Usually in the small print on like supermarket labels, it just tells you, is it worth me getting these three cans? So per 100 grams, it's 20 pence. Whereas if I just get the one tin, it's 30 pence. This is handy for your bunker. Yeah, it is. It's handy for cat food, to be honest. But I'm like, okay, that's got 40 packets in it and it's this much. It works it out for you. I think there's some legal requirements to do it. I do it in boots all the time. 
bog offs or whatever, I'm always like, well, what is the actual? Do I want to buy this like massive fucking thing? Am I just buying for the sake of buying? Like soap and glory yeah. is terrible for that, and those cosmetics and like beauty bundles. Like the amount of foot cream I've got from soap and glory, and people go mad for them because they're like, oh, recommended retail price of 120 pound. But do you want the products in there, or would it just be more frugal to just buy the three that you do? Because yeah. by the time you've bought those three, maybe it'll cost you 20 quid, but it hasn't cost you 40 to have a shelf full of foot cream. I've got no. a lot of foot cream if anyone wants it. <laughs> I've got, I've got a sort of foot cream question. <laughs> Go on then. A sort of foot cream question because you said about the beauty bundles. Now then, is it bad practice to buy one of those big boxes that are set as gift sets for Christmas? And sort of then re-gift the individual things and keep the stuff you like. No, no, I've done that. No, before. that's genius. And that's lovely. That's thoughtful. Look, you could get you, yourself a little box and put all the products you don't want in it. And all of a sudden, you've got a lovely beauty little hamper, haven't you? Look. 2K Max. Good one for that. Yeah, it is a good mm. one for that. But again, like, beauty gift sets. It's like, have your perfume and, oh, there's a body cream shower gel. It's like... And I found myself saving those for best as well. <laughs> so <laughs> for my like, luxury shower. Yeah, and I, I, do you know what? There's never been a, a day where I was like, I want a particularly luxe shower, right? The Hugo Boss shower cream is coming out today. I use the same stuff day in, day out, and it's just getting dusty in all these boxes. In fact, I gave loads of them away to that Sally Hughes, like, beauty box uh, the, food bank thing yeah, last year. Banks, and yeah. it was breathtaking how high-end the stuff was in there. There are some luxe showers going on. The perfume moisturiser... That is actually where it's at. The ah. smell stays you a lot longer. And then if you put the perfume on as well, it sticks to the smell. Double smellage is hot, what's going on. Hot tip from Offord. Yeah. Smell squared is her nickname. You are mm. welcome. Oh, God. A woman chased me down the road the other day to tell <laughs> me that I smelled nice. No, because I smelled nice. And I could see her staring at me and I passed her. And then she passed me again and was sort of looking back at me. And I was, I hadn't had time to eat lunch. So I had these like corn veggie sausages that I was like eating with my hands like an animal. <laughs> and then that was the time she chose to tell me that I smelled really nice and she wanted to know what I was wearing. I was like, I smelled better than my um, my physical experience was, I think, for her. She regretted it immediately, asking me. It was nice. It was nice and weird. Do you have a question, Hannah? I have a question, yeah. Mickey was talking about the bunker, which is only a moderate exaggeration to my fear of what's coming. So I read that the country is running out of cold storage because of what's happening with people stocking up for Brexit. Right? Do you have any tips on panic buying, I suppose, would be the... <laughs> the word for that well buy it now is probably the best tip because if anything does go like at the moment the supply chains are working you know we're getting the things in from europe as we want them so buy it now oh so God. it can be replenished so depressing. <laughs> yeah. i mean if the apocalypse comes like yeah it well, if you buy like it now and start storing it all up for just potatoes. putting your extra stuff in the basket just you yeah. know tin chili like i'll have two of them not one because then they can replenish it and then it's there again whereas if everybody waits until the last possible moment to panic buy it when it's gone it's gone this so is, again if we are doomsday scenario <laughs> thinking scenario about brexit in. has become like thinking about death again <laughs> i can't do it it's too frightening <laughs> no the thing is you don't need drugs and food after death though at least That's true. at least you're like when you go it's somebody else's problem have i talked about this on the podcast before you know my dad was actually stockpiling stuff for the millennium. Yeah, I think you did. Yeah. But yeah, you're more than welcome to bring it up again, Jen, because it's mad. <laughs> he what was, was he stockpiling? Tinned tomatoes and like probably corned beef or something like that, like tinned meat. We used to have, I oh, fuck knows why, because I 
didn't actually grow up in the 1800s, but for some inexplicable reason, we had an oil lamp that he kept in the shed. And he was a bit like, well, I think I'll just put that in the cupboard under the stairs in case we need it. You know, when all the lights go out, make sure there's a bit of paraffin knocking around or whatever. This is a real thing that actually happened. And the thing is, we're laughing at him now. And yet. And yet. We'll all be queuing up for those tins. I've got no cupboards I've got no cupboard space because my house is basically 75% tea bags. And cat food, <laughs> 25% cat food. The yeah. good thing about that, though, is it's all, you know, it'll last for a long time. So you will use it, even if the worst doesn't happen. It's not yeah. it's not bad spend. If you can afford to do it, you can afford to do it. But um, Christmas, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Joy. So is it wrong to buy your friends loads of cans of corned beef for Christmas, is my question, basically. I think that's very thoughtful. Happy yeah. Christmas, Dad. <laughs> I mean, we'll leave you with that. Um, (laughs) The other thing that we wanted to ask you about are the loyalty schemes. Now, I am a tried and tested member of ASOS Premier, I think it's called. Oh, they've gone. They've done away with the A-list. What? Did you not know? Do you not read your emails? No one does. No. (laughs) GDPR. Yay. Um, Well, they've done away with the loyalty scheme. Apparently, they're going to bring it back bigger and better at a later date. So my tenor for free delivery all year round is now not applicable. You can still pay a tenor for premier delivery, but all of the associated perks, you know, the points that you get for each purchase, that's all done now. I didn't ever use those. I just used the free delivery. Well, if you were I'm buying, really shit at this. If you were buying things, then you've got vouchers to use. So the good news is you'll have vouchers because every time you use that A-list premier delivery, as long as you didn't send it back, you get points and the points actually make money. So the likelihood is, because they've cashed out everybody's vouchers now, so whatever was left there, now they do expire, so don't expect like hundreds of pounds. They did expire because they wanted people to use them, but you should have a voucher there waiting for you. It's the sound of me running out of the interview room to go and work out how many vouchers I've got. And I think they gave everybody like a token sum as well as an apology that the scheme was closing. So you should, you will have free money from ASOS sitting there waiting for you if you didn't. But what about those schemes? Because obviously, like, ASOS seemed like a no-brainer because it was a tenor and I am fairly disorganised. So if I thought, shit, it's so-and-so's birthday and I need it, like, now, it would arrive the next day. Yeah, it, it's, it was amazing. It still is. Like I said, you can still have that. So that's the beauty of that. You weren't using the other perks. So the fact that the A-list stuff's gone, <laughs> it makes me sad, but it will not it will not hurt you it's at not, all. It's not the first time I've made someone sad, Vix. Um, but <laughs> what about other ones? Like money. Amazon Prime is 79 quid. Oh, I love it. Do you? Oh, it's, it's life-changingly good, particularly for London for me, because you can use Amazon Prime now. So I can, if I'm hungover, get milk delivered to the house within two hours. What? And toilet rolls and pet food. Whole Foods is one of their partners. So you can get premium stuff. Ridiculous, like deli olives delivered. What it's, is this fucking witchcraft? Download the Prime Now app. It's a grocery delivery, same day grocery delivery. Can I just say, look my at me plan changing to lives. become a hermit is going very, <laughs> very well. I think we're going to need to just have a little bit of a, a, a rewind to what Amazon Prime actually is. Yeah. So it's like premium membership for Prime. So you get free next day delivery on things like free delivery. You get access to Amazon Prime deals which are like typically like next day express service and the telly right you get the tv samsung prime streaming it used to be bollocks but it's got so much better because netflix and now tv is so good so you're paying about 7.99 a month and you can do it by household so you Um, don't have to you don't all have to have a membership and and that's as much free delivery as 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 much as you can handle you can send stuff to other people's homes as well like i'm not advocating that i'm not saying i abuse my membership but if your mate wanted to buy something 
they could. If Hannah phones me <laughs> and says, I've run out of milk and I'm really ill. You could prime now with some stuff, yeah. Holy shit. And there's suppliers like Amazon Fresh, Morrison. So I don't think you could buy Morrison's. I can hear people can... planning to leave their husbands literally now. <laughs> Why do I need him? I thought there was Amazon no hope prime. left in the Someone world. Someone could get a Morrison shopping. Yeah, within a few hours. Well, that is crazy. I ordered false eyelashes and tights to my desk last week because I forgot to bring them to the office and I didn't have time to get out for a black tie event. That's how, that's how ridiculously I abuse this. <laughs> that is incredible. Fix any more tips that you want to chuck our way? It's just think about what you actually want. And it's now, it's the same at Christmas, it's the same for January sales. What do you need? Don't be mad and just buy things for the sake of buying things. And if you do, for the love of God, send them back when you realise that they're not what you wanted. It's not just Black Friday. Like, shops are constantly going in and out of sale now. You don't have to wait for the big Christmas events. If you shop around enough, there are deals to be had literally everywhere, all the time. You just need to be a bit clever about what you do with it. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I am speaking to Sally Bolton, Strategic Planning and Operations Director of the All England Lawn Tennis Club, at the launch of the 2018 Ticketmaster State of Play report on Attitudes Towards Sport. Hello. Good morning. This morning, the panel that you were on was talking about what the reports found on changing attitudes in women's sport. One of the overall barriers commented on in the report is the lack of interest in women's sport especially in football which I found quite shocking because I think that we're constantly told that football is one of the huge success stories in women's sport and Alex Scott Arsenal and England player just said on the panel now that we're on the cusp of something special what do you think about that about the idea that there's a lack of interest in women's sport I'm not sure that it's necessarily the case I think if you were looking at the more, some of the more positive things that came out of the report what the report told us was that those that do watch women's sport are of a younger generation and I think one of the challenges for sport more generally is is the aging nature of our fan bases so actually from women's sports perspective it's really positive that the the majority of people who watch women's sport are of that younger generation I think it's starting to see that change where women's sport operating at the same level as men's sport is normalized it's normal to see uh, female football players having the same kind of profile as male football players that's becoming more normal if you're an eight-year-old now and I think that's very positive these things do take time I think if you look back Um, to the profile of women's football 10 years ago we are in a completely different place and we should continue to be hungry to get the likes of women's football the same level of profile as men's football but without doubt times are changing and it's much better than it used to be absolutely and I don't want to bang on too much about football because obviously you deal with tennis but the appointment of Susanna Dinage was announced yesterday as the CEO of the Premier League how significant do you think that is It is undoubtedly significant, and that is one of the most powerful roles in sport in this country. It shouldn't be significant. She is a fantastically talented individual. It's interesting that they selected someone from media rather than from sport, and I think that's a really good talking point, almost more so than the fact that she's a woman. It it should be normal, and I think nowadays it is more normal. It shouldn't be that surprising, but but it's a great appointment. On the panel just now, Matt, who's uh, chairing the panel, kind of implied that people really only know about Serena in the women's game, and obviously I'm a sports journalist, so that 
to me that's quite shocking because you know there's chat about how it's a bit boring because she always wins well I mean she she doesn't always win anymore and there there is a rotation of, of women that do win the Grand Slams and I think that's, that's that's a point of interest in terms of drawing people in do you think it's true that people only really know who Serena is. I think what tennis has at the moment is it, both the men's game and the women's game some megastars that totally transcend the sport and Serena's are the best example of that. So the person in the street is likely to be able to name Serena very quickly and may not be able to, to name many other tennis players but I think what women's tennis has got is a fantastically competitive field. So if you put Serena aside we've got a whole range of other female players at that level competing and winning major tournaments and I think that's fantastic news for women's tennis. It can't be a bad thing that the sport has names like Serena's that transcend the sport and perhaps get the sport to a wider audience, that can't be a bad thing. It's quite interesting to me. Tennis is quite diverse in terms of the split between men and women. The matches that Joe Conta was in at Wimbledon last year were the most watched games of matches of the entire tournament, in the UK at least. So if you look at the sport outside of the UK, it's becoming more diverse in other contexts as well so for example the last two finals of the US Open have been in the women's field all women of colour as the finalists for the last two years and also there are more men of colour playing outside of the UK do you think that's something that we're going to start to see shifting in the UK a bit where it is still quite a white sport? I'm not really an expert on the, the kind of development level of the sport in this country, but what I would say is that sports people in any sport should reflect society. And so a society in, it becomes more diverse in any country, the, the people participating in that sport should reflect that society. And sports should be doing everything it can in, in developing and, and nurturing talent, looking at the broadest possible base. In the end, if you are developing a sport, what you want is to find the very best athletes that give you the opportunity as a nation of winning things and so you should be looking at the broadest possible base to do that. Port suggests that sometimes communication of women's sporting events is difficult or people aren't really aware that they're happening and obviously in tennis it's a slightly different story again because the men's and women's tournaments are generally played sort of at the same time. What do you think that sporting clubs outside of tennis, what could they learn from tennis and, and are they doing their bit? For sports where there's a long-held tradition of, of men and women competing at the same time, it's much more straightforward. So you think about the likes of athletics as well as tennis. Uh, you think about rowing, you think about cycling. A lot of those are environments in which men and women have competed at about the same sort of time. And that's often the case with Olympic and Paralympic sports. It's much harder for very long-standing, more traditionally male, largely team sports to to make that change so although we should remain hungry for that change I think it will take a bit more time what we've done at Wimbledon is we've made a commitment in our coverage that the coverage will be 50-50 men and women that's the thing we have the, the, the gift of if you like so prize money 10 years ago but we've made a very conscious effort to say we'll make sure there's no unconscious bias in there and commit to making sure the coverage on all, all of our channels are as 50-50 split and I think you know other sports looking at that in the spaces they can control the output of their coverage could, could maybe make the same kind of commitments I think we all sort of in the industry had a gut instinct that looking ahead to the future, that the, the way in which people will want to consume sport will change the way that we're going to have to present sport. And I think that presents a fantastic opportunity for women's sport because I think some of the long-held traditional views about sport being very male are quickly disappearing. Um, and you see that amongst the younger generation. We heard some of that on the panel today. It's just for kids nowadays, it's largely a non-issue in lots of places. And that's really refreshing to see. Sally, thank you very much. You're welcome. 
joined by Lisa O'Keefe, Director of Insight at Sport England. Lisa, it's lovely to finally meet you. Lisa was one of my supporters when I was doing my silly Olympic thing and we were just chatting about how, as a result of doing that, I've kind of gotten into boxing and I think it's a good example of how the Olympics gives fantastic coverage to women's sport and Kate Richardson-Walsh, who was speaking on the panel you were just on, was saying that the Olympics in Wimbledon were really the only opportunities to watch women's sport as a child. Do you think that has changed much? I think there is more visibility of of women playing sport, yes, for sure. We see it more, certainly in social media, a lot more digital content, which is fantastic. And we see some more high-level examples, so Man United now having a women's team. There are stories which are making women's sport more visible. But it remains the case that for the vast majority of women, if you ask them about sport, it's not something they particularly see. They don't watch it. Their past experience of it may be something that they played at school. And they don't know, because why should they, the vast array of sports and opportunities that are available out there, they wouldn't know where to go and they probably don't have anybody to go with. So there's a big job, I think, to do in terms of getting more women generally in society just aware of the opportunities. Because one of the things the report picks up on is the fact that people aren't necessarily aware that they can go and watch these things. And obviously, like, digital stuff is great, and in some respects we're moving more towards that direction. But at the moment, for older people particularly, that's not how we consume sports. So if you don't know it's on, you kind of have to hunt it down, don't you? You definitely have to hunt it down. So it probably doesn't surprise you to know, Jen, I'm a massive sports fan. And I'm a big cricket fan. And I have attended an awful lot of matches at the Oval this year. The men's T20 side, fantastic. The women's Kia Super League side, amazing. I went to the Oval to watch the men play. Uh, I had my ticket. I bought it because I was going to watch the men. Three days before I went, one of my friends said, are you coming to watch the women's game? I didn't even know that the best women's cricket side in that competition were playing before the men at the same ground. It wasn't on the ticket. It wasn't on the ticket. It wasn't really advertised. And me, a massive sports fan who follows Surrey Cricket on social media, didn't see it. So, really, if I can't find it, what's happening with everybody else? And it's fantastic that Surrey put the two matches on. Brilliant. I mean, really fantastic. And they're really, really supportive of the women's game. But somebody in the ticket office either didn't know or forgot, actually, we need to put this on as well. Cricket is a good example, really, because the report found that it was one of the more popular sports in terms of women who would go and watch it who hadn't necessarily gone to see the men's game. And that's quite a good example of how regular coverage can really help with that we've seen in the last couple of years for example sky have really upped their game they're showing a lot of women's cricket and it is still a lot harder to watch women's rugby women's football it's a lot harder to watch those on tv but also we're seeing that young people are more likely to attend women's sport as well which kind of backs that up as well because it's more normalized is it all about the coverage or as also suggested by the report does schools and parents have a role to play in this Mm, i think there's a couple of jobs here so the first one is just building out of the fan base so in this country we are great at being sports fans Mm. and a sports fan will love and care about their team 
And if we can get the sports fan to a place where actually I'm watching my team and it doesn't matter to me whether it's the men playing or the women playing, but it's Man United or it's Surrey or it's Chelsea or it's Harlequins. I mean, we're, we're sitting here at, at Twickenham. I can look across to the stoop and Harlequins are doing a fantastic job because it's the brand. It's all about Harlequins. And there are lots of images of both the men and the women. And they're really getting behind this idea of just selling the concept of coming to watch Harlequins play. And I think that's really important. So that's one side. Build out of your current fan base. And it doesn't matter whether it's men's or women's, it's sport. I think the second challenge that we've got is... The reality for us is that for very many women in this country, sport doesn't work. So at a young age, they decide it's not for them. You know, and, and we hear a lot of women say, well, I'm just not sporty. I was mentioning at the conference today, 35% of girls are not confident to do pee. 60% of young women worry about being judged when they exercise. And 50% of women think they're got not good enough to play sport or exercise so so we have this issue that sport is just not working as well for women and girls as it is for men so that is something we absolutely have to address as well and and as sport as the system we have to stop asking ourselves what's wrong with these women that they're not enjoying sport and they're not following our teams and they're not buying tickets we need to ask ourselves what do we need to do differently so that we are attractive and engaging to the vast majority of women who are deciding at a fairly young age it's not for them absolutely i'm you know i look at myself and i, I find those statistics really heartbreaking actually because i came to sport at, as you know at an older age and now i feel like i've cracked this incredible secret and now i'm like i want to tell everyone about it all the time but i had to proactively seek that out for very very different reasons than an actual genuine at the time interest in sport how can we make sport more attractive to women so they don't have to proactively seek it out I think it's really important for us to ask them what they want I know it sounds daft and obvious but often a lot of sport is designed for and delivered by people who love sport and who find it really easy so we put up with all the hassles if I'm honest you know if the experience isn't quite right or if it's really difficult to get there or to book it or to take part we put up with that because we love it so much and and often it can be tempting to think the only problem here is that, that, that people don't know this exists. Once they find it and they try it, they'll love it as much as we do. And, and therefore, you know, they'll get that bug and it'll be fine. That's not how it works. What we need to do is, is ask women, what do you want? How can we redesign this? How can we create a, an experience, an atmosphere where you feel welcome, where you're not worrying about if I turn up there, well, will anybody speak to me? Because actually, you know, they're going to look at me and think, well, you don't fit in here. Or if I don't quite have the right kit, am I going to stand out? If I feel I'm not good enough, will people be judging me and not really want me here? And unfortunately, that is more often than not the environment that we create. That's actually why I was really, really interested in the journey that you went on when you were trying all of these different sports, because you must have encountered this day in, day out when you were walking into very strange environments and people were kind of looking at you thinking, well, why are you here? And I'm imagining, although each sport was different, there was probably this undertone, which is, well, you know, you're either good at it or you're not. And the good ones are kind of 
welcomed with open arms. Brilliant. And then the people who are perceived as being less good, sometimes the welcome is not so nice. People are very nice to me because I was tweeting about it quite a lot. But, um, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I found that the, the thing is people who love sport love sport and they really want other people to love their sport as well. A lot of the people that volunteer with clubs, you know, they're not, they're not getting paid to do it. There's not really anything in it for them other than just sharing their love of sport and and I've, I've found that personally quite infectious heartwarming stories and really nice things to see but yeah I think the idea of walking into a gym or something if you haven't been for a while is pretty horrific they love you to love sport in the way that they love it and the product that they love I was talking the other day actually about the development of back to netball which, you know, England netball have been hugely successful in developing. The original premise there was create a, a product where they could encourage women and girls who'd played netball at school to come back later in life. The idea being is we'll, we'll create some, some sessions, we'll build their confidence, and then we'll push them into the league. So, so there'll be a whole lot of clubs who'll be ready to receive these women, and that's great because then they can slot into teams and we, we can play league netball what they actually found was that these women were delighted to have this opportunity back into the sport but actually they weren't interested in joining a club and they were not particularly interested in playing league netball that wasn't why they did it they wanted to to run around have some exercise meet some new people get into a social group have a great time actually the competition side and, and joining a club wasn't of interest to them and what netball realised and actually did a great job of responding to was accepting the fact that you could be a back-to-netballer for four or five years because why would you want to move on from that? And they've now created this whole new side of netball which is, has been born out of the back-to-netballers. So being, being prepared to, to change the way you do things in order to respond to the needs of, of new audiences is really important if we're going to to stop being a niche activity and it, and listen I mean I love sport to death you know and I've worked in sport for a long time I think it's the best thing ever but I also have to accept we are a bit of a niche activity yeah. and if we're going to kind of open our doors we have to be prepared to understand why people find it difficult you've been really busy relaunching this girl can over the last couple of weeks can you tell us a little bit more about that we know that 75 percent of women in england want to be more active but they find it really hard and when we asked them why they said actually it's 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 a fear of being judged so the first one is ability am i going to be good enough will i fit in second one is appearance they're always really concerned about what they look like when they're playing sport yeah and then the third one is actually prioritizing so for a lot of women they feel taking even 30 minutes out in a week to prioritize themselves is probably the wrong thing to do they you know they, they put everybody else before themselves so with this girl can we're trying to talk about that we've got a lovely film at the moment just go to facebook or twitter or instagram hashtag this girl can or hashtag fit got real and have a look at the film and i hope what your listeners will see is some real women doing a whole range of different activities and importantly talking about how they find time and space 
space and an environment where they can fit it into their lives. Have a look on the Sport England website. Again, lots of information in there about what we do. And just uh, hashtag this girl can or hashtag fit got real. And you will find yourself in a world of amazing content just from women sharing their experiences and trying to encourage others to be active. Lisa, thanks so much for talking to us. Pleasure, Jen. Thanks. Hi, Hannah here, just popping in to interrupt to say we have two Sunday chops for you this week. Two? Two. Count them. One. One. Two. two. Easy done. Uh, the first one is an interview that Mick and I did. We went up to Middlesbrough to see Jennifer Cassidy, who's doing some really interesting work investigating what young people think about consent. And secondly, if you enjoyed Holly this week, we've got more from Holly. And what she's telling us is about how you... Yes, you, if you are blogging, if you are podcasting, or you're just saying what you think on Twitter, how you can avoid getting yourself into some legal difficulties. They're both coming up on Sunday. If you subscribe, they'll be waiting there for you. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disney. Dunleavy, what Disney did you do this week? This week I did 2003's Finding Nemo, Hooray. which is a Pixar for Disney. It won an Oscar for Best Animated Picture. It is apparently, fun fact, I haven't had fun facts for a while. There's been no fun for anyone for ages. <laughs> it's the best-selling DVD title of all time. Apparently, of all time, yeah. I do actually own it on DVD. Well, I think that also might explain why, when I have previously said to friends of mine that have children that I quite like Finding Nemo, I tend to be met with a massive eye roll. But I can only assume that's because if every single house has a copy of this on DVD, they've all seen it 40, 50, 60 times by now, so they are sick to death of it. There was a sequel, Finding Dory, which came out in 2016. And other interesting fact to know about Finding Nemo is despite the fact the message that it put across was that really fish don't belong in aquariums, they belong in the sea, it itself prompted a huge amount of intensive farming <laughs> oh, no. for clownfish as there was a massive rush to own them and put them in an aquarium. So it was kind of a bullet to the foot in Whoops. that sense. Um, I had seen it before, a couple of times actually, and I liked it. I would have said before I started doing this that one of the better Disney films is Finding Nemo. What about you guys? I, as previously mentioned, own it on DVD, so I have seen it quite a few times, and I, I like it a lot. And I did rewatch it as well because, you know, I got to watch Finding Nemo again. I have seen it. I watched it when we first started this Disney jaunt uh, way back when. Uh, I have not rewatched it. You say jaunt, Hannah says Odyssey. <laughs> this Odyssey, sure. Mm. <laughs> did you like it, Hannah? Yeah, I did like it. I think I liked it a little bit less this time than when I've seen it previously. Probably partly because of when you see things a few times, they do sometimes lose something. But also because despite my constant moaning, I have actually seen a, really, like, a lot of really good films, which I'd never seen before. Coco, Moana, Wally. So now I'm kind of wondering how it stacks up against them. Uh, so I think it's good, but I, I certainly don't think it's perfect. Do, should we have a bit of plot? Mm. Just a bit of plot. Okay, so the mum dies early. <laughs> Natch. Classic Disney. Yeah, <laughs> leaving 
uh, a clownfish called Marlin alone with his son Nemo. He has a, a little fin that doesn't, it's like a small, that is not quite formed. So that, plus the fact that his mother had, and had died and all the other eggs that were, were in the same, I don't know, batch, what do you call it? Batch. Carton. Um, <laughs> as him, his father is very, very overprotective of him. So that's how it starts off. The father is played by Albert Brooks, who has a very Tom Hanks voice. In that it's just something quite reassuring about, quite wholesome, quite, oh, this is going to be feel good about Tom Hanks's voice. And I think Albert Brooks sounds enough like him that it sort of carries that over. I mean, to be fair, he's really good in his own right as well, obviously. Another fun fact, or another fun fact. Yes, please. Yeah. Albert Brooks's real name is actually Albert Einstein. Sure. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So anyway, Nemo gets taken by a diver and ends up in an aquarium of a dentist living in Sydney. And at this point, the film sort of splits in two. First thread is Marlin's attempt to find Nemo with the help of a forgetful fish called Dory. And the second half is Nemo, who's attempting to break out of the tank that he has kept in with the help of the other fish in the tank. Now, if you're going to pick a side on these two, I'm all about what's going on in the tank. That is the best bits of Finding Nemo, mostly because it's actually got three of the best comedy actors working. I know I say that it's got good cast nearly every time, but genuinely, three of the best that actors working incredible. in comedy are in that tank. Number one, Willem Dafoe, mm. who, well, I don't know why he doesn't do more comedy, because when he does do comedy, like in particular, The Life Aquatic and The Shadow of the Vampire, he is fucking hilarious. But also he is, I suppose this is for the adults, not for the kids, He's got such a recognisable voice that it kind of works that you don't know whether his character is going to be good or bad because it's mm. Willem Dafoe, so that works out. I watched it with my friend Syl, and she, I was every time someone came on, I went, you know who that is? That's fucking so-and-so. And she went, oh, so who's, is he called Finn? I think Gil. he's called Gil. Gil. So when Gil came on, which is the character played by Willem Dafoe, and I went, oh, and that's Willem Dafoe, and she went, fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> Willem Dafoe was playing a fish. I was like, yep, yeah, it's true. Alison Chiani yes. plays the creature that is, I don't know, is it like a starfish that's yeah. attached to the, the side of the tank. She is brilliant. She's so funny. She is so great. And probably the character, the person with the least lines in this, but the most laughs, is the brilliant, like seriously, probably my favourite actor in the whole world, Stephen Root, <laughs> who plays the character of Bubbles in what this. What does he get to say? Well, he's basically institutionalised because <laughs> he's been in the tank for such a long time. So... There's got one of those little treasure trove things in the tank that flips up and bubbles come out of it. And that's basically all he says. Bubbles, 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 bubbles. And it's really, really funny. God, I love Stephen Root. Why is he not more famous? Because whenever I say, like, Stephen Root's my favourite actor, people are like, who? And then when you point out what he's been in, you're like, he's been in nearly everything that is good ever, basically. He's in Get Out. Haven't seen You'd have seen him in that. Okay. He is, well, he's most famous for working with Mike Judge. So he's in okay. King of the Hill and okay. he is in Office Space. Have you seen Office Space? No. I oh, should watch it. It's on Netflix. It's a real Who sort of... Who's he in King of the Hill? Bill Dotrieve and some other people in okay. King of the Hill, but predominantly Bill. He's in... He's in Justified. He's in Justified. He's, he's in Boardwalk Empire. He's he, in True Blood. He was in True Blood. Oh, he, he was, gets around then. He does. Mm. It, uh, basically, He's character actor Marto Mar- Margot Martindale, but as a man. Yeah, but he does comedy and 
drama. And I mean, just pick pick a television series, any television series, and I put money that he has appeared in it I, for some period of time. I mean, not Game of Thrones. But apart okay. from that, and he is really terrific. He's really funny. He does tragedy unbelievably well, which is, I suppose, why he plays an institutionalised fish. Meanwhile in this, off on the other side, Marlin is trying to get to Sydney with the help of this this fish. He also encounters some sharks. He encounters um, some turtles who try and teach him, you know, because you have to learn something in a Disney mm-hmm. film. So what he learns from the turtles is you should be a bit more Montessori school about your kids <laughs> and let them, like, <laughs> let them run around wild. Eventually, with the help of all sorts of creatures, they meet up, they get back together and they all live happily ever after. There are some problems with this film. There are some bits that are actually just comedy joy. Those seagulls are so fucking funny. I still do it whenever I see a seagull. Mine, 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 (laughs) mine, mine, mine. That's how seagulls talk. Yeah, it's perfect. But there are some faults. It doesn't have a bad guy, essentially. Even the Creatures that you think are going to be bad guys, like the sharks, or like where they get swallowed by Gross. a whale. Yeah, one like, of those is Eric Banner. Talk about great actors. One of them in... is Barry Humphreys. Really, Damon Average is Bruce. Well, the the, the, ham, the Hammerhead, the hammerhead one, one is, Eric is, is, is Eric Banner. He's another great actor, although he does actually make quite a lot of shit. Man is the bad guy. We're the bad guys. But even so, the only man in it, like really, the dentist, he's all right, isn't he? The little girl's a prick, though, isn't she? Yeah, but you can't like, have a small girl carry the entire, like, badness of humanity. So, like I say, it kind of lacks a nemesis, really. Isn't, isn't like, the um, how the mum dies? I can't fucking remember. Is it a shark? It's certainly a, a bigger creature. It's, it's a fish. Are they not bad? But it's so quick and it's sort of nature and you just get on with it. It's not like that is the thrust of the film, is they're trying to fight that nemesis which is what you quite often get in a no, Disney movie. No, I suppose the nemesis is bad shit sometimes happens. Yeah, and if, if, but if you're going to make them nemesis man when the mm. kid, like when they're trying to get out of the, the current and the, the little turtle falls out of it and it comes back in. I mean if you want to show that man comes bad he'd come back in with those things that go around cans attached That's to his yeah. head wouldn't he? Mm. Um, but there it, is jeopardy isn't there? So Yeah, but there isn't an antagonist. Anxiety. Maybe Marlene's anxiety yeah. is the antagonist. And he has to get over that so he can be a better dad and enjoy yeah. his own life, Hannah. It's got a number of set pieces that I think all go on a tiny bit too long. The stuff with the jellyfish could be shorter. God. When they're inside the whale, it could be shorter. I think... I mean... I don't know. You're looking at me like you don't agree. No, no, I'm just... I'm listening intently. That's my listening face. Um, Dory has a very fine line to tread between (laughs) cute and annoying, and Mm. I don't think that's always done successfully, if I'm entirely honest. She would be enormously frustrating as a friend. Mm. Yeah, I should mention that's Ellen DeGeneres. And she does play her very well. Yeah. Um, Yes, but you would be like, I can't continue this friendship now. Goodbye. Yeah. And the good news is she wouldn't come back to you because she wouldn't remember who you were in the first place. Also, I don't. I mean, obviously, there's not enough women in it. There's very few. Yeah, I suppose. And one like, of them's a bit annoying, and one of them's a prick. Yeah, and one of them is is stuck inside, uh, like a tank, and she gets to be the mothery one, doesn't she, mm. in the tank? So it's kind she's of a kind of mothery. But 
But yeah, there are bits of it. And I have to say, how it ends in that kind of happy, he's back in his real home and everything's gone really well and he's really happy. That's one ending. But actually, it comes in with a second ending, like it's a Peter Jackson film, that is loads better in which... All of the fish that are in the tank manage to escape and are left floating in bags on the sea and they just say, what's next? That is a great ending. That is perfect. But like I say, it's... Ugh. I like it, but it, it does have some bits that that aren't great. Uh, I like John Ratzenberger's obvious uh, appearance. He is in it twice. He's a school of fish, isn't he's he? He's a science and he's a science stingray. Yeah. Mr. Science and he is a school of fish that <laughs> answers questions and takes a piss out of Marlene. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. And um, Jeffrey Rush is in it as well. Is he? He plays Nigel, oh, yeah. the pelican. It's The cast is incredible. Uh, yeah. It is, so why is it so shit? Jen does not like I don't Nemo. think it's shit. It's shit I think Jen. that's... I, I, For reasons that you mentioned, that was enough to kill it for me. It's fucking boring. Like, the long bits are way too long. And also, Dory's really annoying. It's yeah. It's it's that's enough. It's it's dead in the water. Lol. Uh, for me, I I didn't. I was just like, when will it end? This is long. Jen has no soul. <laughs> Jen's got shit to do, man. <laughs> so did you rush out and immediately watch Finding Dory? No, I haven't seen it. I don't plan to unless it you're going to um, make me. It has Idris Elba in it. I mean, so now now is a pricked up, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, they're not Arias. That's not not even Idris Elba is enough of a sell to make me watch the sequel to that. Wow, bigger wow. news than Brexit over here today. Yeah, mm. You heard it here first. Doesn't even what score are you giving it? Well, contrary to uh, to what Jen just said, I'm going to give it four. Four what? Four bubbles. Bubbles, 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 bubbles. Out of five bubbles, 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 bubbles. bubbles. Standard issue for all women.